and welcome to a bonus Halloween episode of Slate Spoiler Specials. I am Sam Adams, and today we're going to spoil the Halloween sequel starring Jamie Lee Curtis, which was written and directed by David Gordon Green. Uh, this is the 11th installment in the Halloween franchise, although it is uh, in some cases the second because it throws out the nine sequels that have been made before it. Um, and it basically sets up a rematch between masked knife-wielding stalker Michael Myers and his victim from the first movie, Jamie Lee Curtis, playing Laurie Strode. Joining me to talk about it is Jeffrey Bloomer, who is a senior editor at Slate. Hi, Sam. And Christina Cotterici, who is a staff writer. Hi. Hi. So let's start off. Let's establish our, our bona fides right off the bat. Um, have you seen the original Halloween, any of the nine movies in between that and this one, and what is your general uh, attitude towards the franchise? Jeff, you want to go first? Uh, yes, I think I'm probably the fanatic of the groove. I've seen all the sequels multiple times, including the Rob Zombie remakes. Uh, oh my god! I, I, I'm I've always I have from a very young age. My mother might have shown me the original Halloween when I was nine or ten, and it was very formative, getting me into movies. It's it's an important movie to me, and then the sequels are just fun. They're I think we could talk about them more later, but they're generally not, there's none that are unwatchable except maybe the one with Paul Rudd. Otherwise, they're like pretty okay. And I've always loved the franchise. So I was very excited for this movie. Okay. And having seen a major theme in this one is childhood trauma. So having seen the first movie at the age of nine, I think you're equipped <laughs> to. Um, Christina, where do you stand on these? Um, I don't watch scary movies very often. I had never seen any of the, uh, neither the original nor any of the remakes or sequels. Um, so I saw the brand new one on Friday, and then I watched the original one yesterday. So I kind of came into it, I came into the film we're discussing today, completely virginal to the series. That's oh, that's great. Um, yeah, I be, bet that's a lot of the audience, right? Because it's such, such a big hit. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we're going to talk about is, I mean, this is very sort of self-conscious uh, 21st century sequel, very sort of, you know, mired in awareness about being a sequel and has lines about throwing out stuff from the previous sequels. Um, but, you know, I, I believe sort of strongly in principle that, I mean, a movie sort of has to play on its own. And I'm sure some people are going to be coming into this at least, you know, aware that there are other movies, but certainly having seen maybe none and certainly not all of them. I think I've seen all the movies that are just called Halloween um, which is now three of them because that's the original and then the first Rob Zombie sequel, which I think came out in 2007. Um, and then this one, I believe I saw H2O, which I, I think is uh, by common consent the worst of all of them. No. No, it isn't. Okay. That's outrageous. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> I love Halloween H2O. Uh, I should, we, well, you should probably say it's a remake that Rob Zombie made, not a sequel, right? Uh, he, he straight up remade it. Yeah. Okay. Right. I don't know. I guess, uh, just for the record, it's basically all the movies are like teasing out the mythology in a way that is very repetitive. So it's kind of a distinction uh, that doesn't necessarily need to be made. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about this as well. But I mean, it's one of the things that's kind of interesting and, and bizarre about the idea of this movie having been, you know, sort of sometimes remade, sometimes extended, sometimes something in between so many times is that there's like very little to work with. In the first one, I mean, the movie has almost no plot, which is um, either a shortcoming or, or part of its genius, depending on where you come at it from. But it, it's not a thing you end feeling like, well, I really wish the relationships had been more resolved and I hope we get <laughs> to see more from these characters. I mean, they're they're barely characters in the first one. I mean, um, so it's, it's bizarre, but it's a tribute to the, you know, certainly the enduring power of the first one and the <laughs> recognizability of its name, um, which comes up every year, whether there's a new movie or not. Um, and that is, 
you know, so much of what causes a movie to get made in the first place at this point. Um, let's just, in a basic recommendation level, how, how do you stand on the new one? You, would you recommend this? Would you not? Where do we fall? I would definitely recommend it. I had a lot of fun watching it. Like I said, I don't love horror movies in general, so I wasn't incredibly excited to get this assignment. I had a hard time finding somebody to come with me to watch it. Um, and both me and my friend had a, a really great time because it's also, you know, funny. It's campy and corny. I laughed out loud a couple times during it. And also, you know, even while covering my face with my sweatshirt. And Jamie Lee Curtis is fantastic. There's like there's a little bit of a a feminist underpinning to this sequel, which I'm sure we'll talk about, that I found unique in the horror movie genre, especially um, as a sequel to a film that sort of pioneered the like sexy teenager gets stabbed trope. Right. Let me ask just because you saw it, you know, in a sort of regular theater with like real people. What was your audience like? Um, I would say well i saw it on a friday night and it was pretty late and so i think that might have informed the audience that was there right but it was mostly people in their 20s and 30s um not a lot of audible gasping or screaming i think that was all me uh <laughs> but it seemed like everyone had a pretty good time. I, As people were leaving, people were talking about like, oh, yeah, you know, I loved the first one. I love this one even more kind of a thing. Yeah, I saw this. This movie had a, a kind of strange for a movie like this, but it had its world premiere at the Toronto Film Festival in September. And that is um, it was not sort of in the proper Midnight Madness section of the festival, but they did show it at, you know, 11, 1130 on a Saturday night. And that is for me, like one of my favorite audiences in the world to see movies in, like when there's a, a genre movie, like a horror or splatter movie that they really like. I mean, that audience just goes crazed. Like I still remember going in to see Green Room there a few years ago and it was, mm. you know, several days into the festival. I was exhausted. I was like, basically, if I can make it through this movie without falling asleep, um, I, I will do that. <laughs> and if I do and if I can't, then I'm just going to go home. And then I came out of there at two o'clock. Just I could have I felt like I could have been up for five more hours. I was just so like energized by that movie and the crowd. Um, and this one, I mean, I think people generally like, but they were a lot quieter than that audience usually is. They were not. Um, maybe they were kind of involved, more involved in in the tension of it, and not sort of you know being as, as sort of vocally like you know making fun of it or screaming at it or whatever. But it was not the way I'm kind of used to that audience reacting. Jeff, where do you, would you recommend this? Yeah, I mean, I like the movie. I think it's good fan service. It's extremely enjoyable to watch. And I think that that's hard to get past. But what you're mentioning, I think it speaks to the biggest problem with the movie that we can talk about more later is that it's just not very scary. Right. <laughs> um, and yeah. that's like definitely not true of the original movie, which is like pretty terrifying. Um, and it's, it is what, it, you know, it's, this movie has a lot more going on and a lot more going on upstairs than it's trying to do a lot more. But uh, yeah, that was my biggest disappointment. And I think that's why the audience probably perhaps is not more uh, excited. I actually would disagree with you, Jeff. And I thought the one I saw in the theaters, this most recent one was a lot scarier than the original, which I guess I watched the original, you know, on my little home TV in the daytime. So that probably also made a difference. But and also the fact that um, you know, just the quality of film on a big screen and and made in 2018 is a lot different from one made in 1978 that I'm streaming on Amazon. But I found the the most recent one 
incredibly scary, actually. Uh, so, And now I'm questioning myself since you're the big fan of horror movies in general and this in particular. I mean, I think it's all about how it strikes you. Probably part of what it speaks to is the memories of me watching it when I was young. And it's always had this outsized like, terror factor for me. Whereas the new one I thought was just kind of perhaps a little more routinely violent in its slasher scenes, although they're very fun too. Uh, whereas the old one, it just has this like kind of sustained menace that goes through the whole thing mm. and dread. Right. I mean, this this one, I mean, I found the slasher stuff in it very effective for me. I am kind of very easily manipulated in that stuff. Like, <laughs> you do not want to sit next to or behind me at a movie like this because I will just look like electric shocks are being applied to my body. I am a, a jerker and a spasmer and uh, whatever else. But this movie does a very weird thing. It actually has three uh, writers. I think the original draft was um, by Jeff Fradley and then uh, David Gordon Green, who directed it, came in and uh, rewrote it with his sort of usual partner, Danny McBride. And usually what they do together is, you know, stuff like an Eastbound and Down or they don't I mean like sort of stoner comedies and stuff. So they're very weird um, pairing for this. And they are, and we'll kind of deal with some of these later, but there are scenes in this movie that feel very much like Oh, that's a Danny McBride scene. There's sort of jokey moments in it that are, you know, tension breakers or changes of pace and and some make it a lot less relentless than the original movie. Mm-hmm. Um, then, you know, in some ways it kind of wears out its welcome less quickly in that respect. But it also is, you know, if an effective, you know, horror movie, especially kind of a slasher movie is about sort of sustained tension. I mean, that's something this movie is. I guess not even trying to do, but it but it abandons in a weird way that I don't know. It feels like maybe three or four different movies all trying to fit inside the same skin. I agree. There's just so much going on between all the different generations of plot lines and then the, just the individual scenes. They clearly were interested in doing weird things that are kind of off, like the wandering off from the main plot repeatedly. And I don't necessarily mind. It's a fun, very fun movie. And it's certainly not the boring, joyless sequels that often come in series like this. All right. Well, I want to start uh, just at the very beginning, because I think the first scene in this movie does something very important. It introduces us to the true face of evil, true crime podcasters. <laughs> they they show up in the first scene, these, you know, immediately coded as, as intolerable, especially the male, these sort of uh, male, female serial-esque, they're, I think they're British as well, podcasting team. And you just, yeah. you know they're going to get murdered in some horrendous way and you kind of can't wait. But it does this, this very bizarre, um, there's all these sort of gothic asylum scenes where they're going to visit Michael Myers and then he's out sort of standing in this kind of, I don't know, like a marble quad or something. I'm not sure exactly how you describe Watching, it. I saw the movie twice because, of course, I did. And the second time I was looking, I was like, where the hell did they film this? Like, what is this possible thing, the location <laughs> that they found? I was looking around trying to figure it out. Yeah, it was like this institutional facility that weirdly had a very elegant slash kind of whimsical checkerboard courtyard yeah. that you wouldn't normally see in like a prison ground or a hospital. Yeah, and it looks like it's made out of, like, made out of marble, like they're in the courtyard to some like Italian palace or something, but then they're all kind of staked to the inside of these squares like tetherballs. Um, yeah. So they're out there kind of getting their son, but there's a you know limit to where they can go. And the idiot male podcaster is there to, you know, they've been doing something about the babysitter murders, which is the, the, t- the original title of the first movie and is right. referenced in this one. And he, you know, has somehow got Michael Myers' original mask and just, uh, you know, holds it up to him and says, you know, the, the mask is here. Do you want to say anything or whatever, you know? And um, <laughs> he gets, so he gets Michael's original mask and is like holding up to him, trying to provoke a reaction. He gets none. We don't even see Michael's face because we never do. 
um, in the movies and uh, nothing seems to happen. But then there is a, a prison. This a sort of mental asylum is is shutting down. All the prisoners are being transferred to another facility. And of course, what better night to do that on October 30th? Exactly. Um, <laughs> Just in time. Yes. Yeah, strange. In the dead of yeah, night. Strangely, there is a bus crash. Um, <laughs> and all the other lunatics seem to be either captured or killed. But Michael sneaks off. One of the ways you know that this movie is, at least in certain circumstances, not fucking around is one of the first things he he does is um, it is implied that he snaps a, about a 10-year-old boy's neck. Yeah, about that scene. Can we just pause on that really briefly? Yes. I know there's a lot of plot in this movie, but that yeah. one was a, what a particular moment where I was like, what exactly is going on here? The little boy is telling the story to his dad about how he wants to like be in dance class instead or something. Yeah. I didn't mind. It I thought it like, was Oh, this boy like a, a young gay child is forced to go hunting with his dad. I, I, is is the tone that I got. Yes, from it. I think that the it speaks to the ambition that they have for each character to give them a moment and give each actor a moment, which I think is admirable. And like if you look in the credits, each person has a name and they're tr- clearly trying to highlight their cast. But man, what a bizarre little thing that they inserted in there. And the audience... Is it like toxic masculinity kills? Like, if he hadn't <laughs> take his kid hunting, he'd still be alive? I, knew, yeah. I guess that's what it is. I, yeah. thought the kid, I thought the kid was going to survive, but no, the kid's like larynx is crushed. I, I, don't, I don't really know what to take from it. I was, certainly wasn't offended by it. The audience clearly was laughing at it in a way that I didn't necessarily think was positive in both times I saw it. Weird little aside in a movie that's full of them, but it definitely stuck out to me. And I just want to say quickly, don't we see Michael's face one time in the original movie? Doesn't she take off yeah. his mask? Oh, He's no, just yes. a normal looking. That's right. That's yeah. the only time, though. Besides that, he must be. He looked pretty normal from the side in this one. Like I, th- I thought he'd be a little more pulverized. Right. You got a sort of like one thought... one quarter profile or something. Yeah. Like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. When in that one little glimpse of his face, and having not seen any of the previous movies, I like didn't know what the mask was. Didn't know that we never see his face. And I thought I got a little glimpse of an eye that was like sewn shut. Or, like, weirdly scarred over or something, which is now I think is significant because when I, uh, you know, saw the original movie, they're like, the doctor is like, he had the blackest eyes, the devil's (laughs) eyes. And now here, you know, like, maybe is one of his eyes gone and yet he's just as evil as before. Yeah, actually, now that you mention it, doesn't he get stabbed in the eye with a hanger in the original movie? So that would explain it. I didn't. I didn't notice this. I don't remember. But uh, if that is indeed right, that would explain that. Uh, Yeah, she does unravel a hanger and poke him in the eye, which I think was one of the least believable stabbing scenes in that movie. Yeah, I mean, one of the things this movie does. I'm not entirely sure who it is in that scene, but it does bring back um, the actor uh, Nick Castle, who played um, the character is only identified as the shape. Right in the first movie, um, it's Michael's also played by a, by a stuntman in this movie because I think that actor is like in his you know seventies by now. Or yeah, something. I thought I read that Nick Castle was a cameo, although I'm not sure at what point it is that he comes in. Probably something like kind of pregnant. I don't remember what it is though. Yeah, so they're both credited as that, but I mean the, the just looking at the the picture of him now, he's you know sort of got like white hair and a beard, which is not the uh, the Michael that we see there. So the scene uh, shifts. There's a pretty sort of gruesome. Uh, several people get killed at a, a gas station after the uh, the highway escape. It's our um, true crime podcasters know. Yes. Well, no, but they're also the, the oh, like yes. the person at the counter, and somebody oh, gets yeah. like ripped open over by. He's like you know lubing up a car, <laughs> and then he gets and somebody gets like their their teeth like punched out of their head, and yeah. the whole whole bunch of sort of like off screen yeah. kills in this that you just sort of see the the remnants of 
the close-up of the gas station attendant, his jaw is sort of unhinged and like flopping over his desk. His head is on the desk and his jaw is out at some unnatural angle. And uh, that to me was unexpectedly gory and really prepared me for what I thought was an incredibly gory film and certainly more gory than the original. I don't know how it uh, lives up to the other remakes and sequels, but um, I'm just not used to seeing that sort of close up of like a maimed human body in a movie. Uh, and I was thoroughly disturbed by that. And I also didn't expect the podcasters to get killed, which just shows you how little I know about scary movies, where of course, the insufferable and smug and naive people who are like, flaunting their bodies around this notorious serial killer and sort of like egging him on are going to get killed in a, in a disgusting and intimidating way. Oh, yeah. I think it's worse to be British in horror movies than it is to be a virgin or to be like a slutty character or something. <laughs> like, the, there was just absolutely no doubt in the first minutes that they were going to be brutally, brutally butchered. And uh, British versions just don't stand a chance. Yeah, or, well, exactly. yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it does. the movie does an interesting thing sometimes, which it, it kind of presents these characters who in classic slasher movie fashion are kind of asking for it. They're often kind of paired with these characters who with them who don't actually seem to deserve it, like the little kid who gets his neck snapped or the female podcaster who seems to be just kind of going along and basically be fine. Or there's another um, kid from the school who gets kind of impaled on a metal fence at some point that there's a sort of motion sensor light sequence there. And that kid's like a little bit of a jerk, but not the kind of age where people usually get gruesomely murdered in, in horror <laughs> movies. So there's a lot of characters like that that kind of, you know, seem basically nice and don't particularly have it coming, but get it anyway. Yeah, I mean, the politics of these movies, as Christina, I'm sure that you, we should talk about more. It, they're, they're fucked up, obviously. This movie, I think, was trying to be a little bit more meta about it. Like, I noticed during that bathroom scene that the woman's death was kind of quick and the man's death is not. Um, he was he was kind of yeah. she I mean, it's they're both being murdered. But I in typical and typically in these movies, I think that you relish female suffering more. That's not always true, but often is true. And in this movie, the male podcaster definitely got his face smashed in repeatedly over and over for a while. And she just kind of got choked again. Not great. But I did notice but I did notice that the movie, I, I think, was trying to tamp down on the traditional stuff. And it seemed like the men in the movie were dispatched more brutally and perhaps for more extended time on screen. Yeah, and certainly more so than the uh, than the original where a lot of the women get killed while they're not wearing shirts. Yes. But and I thought that the that scene where the woman podcaster is on the toilet and he sort of tiptoes into the bathroom and is like hovering outside her stall, for that was the most viscerally uncomfortable and scared I felt because it's the idea of like a man is standing outside of the stall putting his eye to the crack in the bathroom like that made me even more scared than when she was listening to her coworker get his brains bashed in outside of her stall right because it's it's kind of i mean there's there's parts in the movie one of the things it does is is they kind of reuse pieces of john carpenter's original score which then expand was expanded by yeah. other musicians including his son um cody and that itself is very kind of famously minimalist sort of one finger synthesizer but there's also a lot of like quiet in this movie, there's scenes with like virtually no soundtrack at all. or just kind of ambient sound. And those are the parts that are really like, you know, where my shoulders are really kind of tensing up and stuff like that. 
Yeah, I, I noticed the same thing. I did think there were a lot of good silent sequences. And but one thing I just before we move on, which we should, we've been talking about the bathroom for a while. Yeah. Um, it was it was that was one of the most unsettling parts of the movie. The thing with the teeth. Does that seem like something that Michael Myers would do? I don't know. I was a little that was felt like an off note to me as a, as, as a somewhat of a scholar of him. Uh, he, he doesn't he doesn't seem like the type to like collect teeth and then go and like find a woman to throw the teeth at. No, it's not he, normally his thing. No, he's not really like a, a taunter. He's just sort of like a like he's a mindless killing machine. Exactly. It takes like kind of higher intelligence to like fuck with somebody's head before you kill them. Like that's not. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, the scene, yeah. I felt like it was maybe a call. There's a bathroom scene in Halloween H2O, the underrated, perhaps Halloween H2O, uh, where the, she's also in a bathroom, but the woman doesn't die in it. And I kind of thought that was going to happen here. But unfortunately for um, podcaster Dana, not so much. All right. Well, we will I, we will get back to the subject of, of the men in this movie, because I think that is an interesting thing. But first, we need to talk about the women of Halloween, especially three generations of Strode ladies in this. We have Lori, who we've mentioned before. This is Jamie Lee Curtis reprising her role. We have her daughter, Karen, who's played by Judy Greer. And then Karen's daughter, Allison, played by um, a newcomer named Andy Matichak. And the sort of the core of this movie is that by wiping out all the sequels that have come beforehand, basically it's been, you know, 40 years since the original Halloween night. Uh, Lori has been kind of living as this, you know, traumatized victim of the babysitter killer you know, for, for 40 years, but has never really, you know, people knew that he existed and this thing happened. It was sort of this famous, you know, slasher event, but then he's been in prison for 40 years and everybody else has kind of gotten over it. She is the only person who has remained convinced that he is going to get out someday. And in fact, at this point kind of wants him to get out because she has gone sort of full Sarah Connor in the 40 years since then now lives in this heavily fortified house in the woods, um, tricked out with all these booby traps and panic rooms and has a very impressive shotgun collection. Her daughter, Karen, has been sort of raised under that and it's sort of an interesting um, twist in the movie seems to be have been more traumatized by being raised by her mother. Um, she was raised in this kind of incredibly sort of paranoid survivalist um, environment and now lives in a totally unsecured house in the city without even so much as a burglar alarm. And then her daughter, who has kind of grown up divorced from the whole thing, doesn't even really have a relationship with her, with her grandmother, who her mother is kind of kept at arm's length. So there's a whole kind of, you know, three generation dynamic there about how trauma plays itself out um, from one generation to the next that I think is like probably the most interesting ideas in the movie are kind of along that axis somewhere. Where do we where do we first meet the daughter? I don't even remember now. Is she she's at breakfast at home with her parents? Yes. Right. Yes. Right. I mean, we meet we meet Lori because the podcaster go and, and visit her and ask right. her to do an interview. And she basically tells them to. Well, initially, she tells them to fuck off and then they kind of then bargain with her, her a little bit and, and they tell her, you know, a little bit. But that's really just kind of the way of, of bringing her into the movie. Um, yeah. And then we kind of right. move to, you know, sunny Haddonfield, which is no idea um, what is very slowly shambling to it from a deserted highway outside town um, where things in the Strode household are continuing as normal. Yes. And that's one of the first scenes where we get the banter that you're talking about from the screenplay. Like the character, the father character is definitely a Danny McBride character making jokes about getting peanut butter on his dick and stuff. Oh my God. I know. That, yeah, that, was, that was so weird. It was an off note, but I was just like, you know what? This guy's going to get dispatched in like 45 minutes and like it's clearly setting it up. I think it's, again, we'll talk about it more as we go along, but I think he's like a pretty ineffectual man in all of this, like talking about how he can protect his family, la, la, la. But he like obviously cannot. Um, I think it's yeah. very clear from the beginning who the only person who can protect the family is. 
I loved the Judy Greer character who plays Lori's daughter, who has sort of in a backlash to her mother's like protective instincts, you know, loves Halloween. It just seems like she also loves holidays. Like she's wearing a Christmas sweater at another point, like maybe on Halloween, she's already switched into Christmas mode. She says at one point that she feels like the world is full of love and understanding. <laughs> and why did her mother have to teach her how to shoot guns at such a young age? And I love the way she transformed by the end of the movie to like grabbing this shotgun that she had decorated with puff paint <laughs> as a kid. Um, but and also her grand, her daughter, uh, Lori's granddaughter. There were a lot of sort of note for note or shot for shot redos of the original. Like she's in a classroom, sitting in the same seat that her grandmother sat in forty years before. Like both chewing on a red pen and staring out the window. Uh, and she's sort of the only one who believes that her grandmother is not paranoid and crazy. And so I for sure thought that she was going to get killed. And then. She survives because of the resilience of women. Yeah. yeah so you could, could you tell me, because as you said, I mean, you saw the new one before having seen any of the other ones. I mean, did those scenes kind of feel homage to you, even if you didn't know what they were referencing specifically at that point? Yes. I think by the time I got to that point in the movie where the granddaughter comes along, I was like, oh, okay, this is very, this is very sequel-y. And the part where she looks out the window and I kind of thought like, oh, she's going to see, you know, Michael Myers out there. And then it's her grandmother standing out there. Then when I watched the original, I saw, oh, Lori staring out the window and Michael Myers is out there. I was like, yes, that's why that scene felt uh, like a little bit corny or it it felt like there was a little (laughs) shtick that they were trying to carry over from one to the other that's interesting that you could tell i want to say i totally agree with you first of all about judy greer like casting her as laurie strode's daughter it's just like fucking genius she's such a great actress and i guess i don't even know if you can say she's underused anymore because she's in so many things and she gets funny overall she's just perhaps unheralded a little bit she's Um, kind of like famous for being underused at this point to the extent that maybe she's not actually yeah, but no, but she's so she I agree she's so good. And actually I thought the um Andy Manatech, I actually thought that she was great too. One thing I noticed pretty consistently through the movie is that all the young actors were fairly strong. Some were yeah. definitely very performy. We'll get to the the odd scene where the woman's babysitting a, a very foul mouthed child. But uh mo- oh, in general I found all the teenagers to be very strong. The casting was very good. Yeah, so what I mean, what were your first impressions? I'll start with you, Christina, of this sort of, you know, terminatorized Jamie Lee Curtis. Did you I mean, could you did you feel like because it's become especially, you know, in the years since the second terminator, it's become kind of such a thing. Now, I mean, it happened with Sigourney Weaver in the later alien movies. It's kind of, you know, one of the things to weigh to make your kind of action movie sequel more progressive is to just have your lead actor spend a lot of time like working on her biceps. Uh, before you start shooting. So, like, what did you think of this iteration of that trope? It did feel a little bit heavy-handed to me. There were just so many shots of her loading bullets into weapons, cocking those guns, shooting those guns, being a really good shot, like, very forcibly locking doors. Uh, But I love Jamie Lee Curtis, and I, you know, was happy to see a woman standing up for herself as people are telling her that she should get over her trauma by talking to her assailant, which seemed insane to me that the podcasters were saying like, well, you'll never get over this until you confront the guy who stabbed all your friends face to face. 
And I enjoyed that she didn't even skip a beat when she finds out that he escaped. She's like, all right, time to open up my basement arsenal and get all these guns out. Like she wasn't even phased. In fact, she wanted it to happen. She she felt like it was her duty to kill him. Um, yeah, I, I think toward the end, um, when all three generations TM banded together <laughs> against him, I felt like it was... It reminded me of those pictures everyone takes where, like, a grandmother and a mother and a granddaughter, like, all put their hands into the same picture. And, like, one is really wrinkly and then the other ones are less wrinkly. And it's like, oh, look at these, like, three generations of women together. I felt like I wish one of them would have died. It would have felt a little bit less um, like, oh, this is supposed to be a feminist movie. However, I forgave it because the casting was incredibly strong. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's so uh, effective about the original one and it kind of you know, had a, I think in some ways like a very bad influence on the movies that came after it. But it is it's kind of a completely like a psychological, even kind of like anti-psychological movie. Like there's no Michael Myers just kind of kills people because he's Michael Myers. And there's a little bit of especially in the later movies about like, uh, oh, about how he was sort of, you know, traumatized as a child or or whatever. But it's just basically like. It's more of a kind of existential framing of this things. Like it just happens because that's who he is. So the idea that, well, if you would just talk to him, like you'd get, you know, sort of this like psychological closure and it would help you move past it um, is something that this movie kind of really mocks and rejects. I mean, I think one of the things about this movie is that it's, it's meant to be a direct sequel to the original, right? Where like there's zero explanation for why Michael comes for Laurie at all. Like even in that movie, later in the series, you sort of find out that she was supposed to be Michael's sister. But this movie seems to dispatch oh, wow. that. Um, oh, it very it explicitly dispatches that. Like somebody... One of the kids in school is like, oh, didn't you find out that he was his sister? And someone's like, no, that was just some bullshit that somebody made up. Like, they just <laughs> throw the second sequel, like, directly under the bus. Right, famously yeah. so. I mean, the second one was apparently written by, like, like a case of Budweiser a day by John Carpenter or something. Like, he, like, barely wanted to be, have anything to do with it. Uh, but this, so, yeah, I think that there's not, the movie seems to imply that there's some sort of supernatural elements to Michael with the mask. Like, him, like, having this connection to it. And he does go after Laurie again because she's the one who got away, I guess. Like, I... I didn't really fully understand what they were the motives were going with this one. Like he fixated on her in the original movie because he went back to town and he just saw, like, saw her and just started following her around. Like I think that's what was going on, and I wasn't exactly sure how to follow the internal mechanics of this one. Like what was exactly driving him, and like, but I guess perhaps it doesn't really matter. Uh, it's maybe not worth getting. Yeah, I think the whole point is that he he doesn't have a character like his character is lack of a character and you know i think the person who plays michael myers is very good at moving in really robotic fashion and sort of when he kills people he looks at them with a tilted head like almost like a dog who just pooped on the carpet or something like oh look what i did and uh i thought it was even more confusing in the original that he was fixated on lori he it seems to want to kill her more than anyone else but also just kills anyone who seems to get in his way i sort of just accepted in the most recent one that oh he killed this person's friends and uh so now he has some sort of internal something is triggered in him when he thinks of her or sees her i guess Right. So we so now that we've talked about sort of the the women and the the feminist or some people have written about it kind of the quote unquote feminist themes in this movie. Um, let's talk about kind of the male characters in this. Um, other we have Michael Myers, obviously. <laughs> um, but other than that, I mean, it seems like a, a generous description of the men in this movie would be would be that they are useless. Um, a few of them are worse than that, but I don't think 
any of them are the, I mean, the, the most helpful thing any of them do is kind of like get killed by Michael in a way that briefly slows him down. Yeah. I love watching how the cops in these movies react to serial killers. It reminded me of Jaws, where the cops seem like uh, most concerned with preventing panic in their towns and less concerned with the actual danger of a serial killer on the loose, where they're like, well, what, what, kind of laughing, like, what are, what are we going to do, cancel Halloween? Like, of course, we're not going to put out an APB on this car that just got stolen by an escaped serial killer. <laughs> and I feel like those were the the least effective men. And I was sort of happy to see that the the film accurately portrayed their complete lack of remorse or or taking of responsibility for like everything that they did to make sure all these people got killed. Yeah, I kind of felt bad for Will Patton, who's another kind of time-worn character actor who plays the main sheriff in the movie, who like they in one of the more half-baked nods, apparently he's the one who like was the first on the scene in 1978. Like I don't even who knows what's going on with that. But yeah, he's singularly ineffective. They all are. There's even like hot banter scenes, like in the most tense points of the movie. And I think that they're the most obvious signal that the movie is suggesting something more pointed about the useless male characters. But then the other ones are the uh, the boyfriends, right? Um, and the movie quite explicitly, like, so at this point in the movie, as we get going more, uh, we're getting into where he just starts sort of wandering around town killing people in a way that's like even less pointed than normal. He's just kind of wandering about. Right. A lot of those characters are only established like in the same scene where they're killed, mm-hmm. um, which really, I, I mean, I don't even know that the movie particularly needs or wants you to care about them, but I mean, really no reason to care that these people have been, uh, you know, gruesomely murdered at all. Right. And he, the only one he doesn't kill is the baby, which I'm like, I don't know if we're going to be able to explain that here. Like, why wouldn't Michael kill the baby? Do you guys remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, I really wanted him to kill the baby <laughs> because he killed he killed that kid in the first scene. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, wow, this guy really is evil. You know, he doesn't care who he's killing. Like anyone who gets into his path basically will become his next target. So the fact that he left the baby alone was very strange to me. Yeah, he so clearly too. does not watch Black Mirror because that baby can incriminate <laughs> him. <He's> missing out. <laughs> Amazing. Um, I mean, do we want to talk about any of those those sort of those kills? Um, well, individually? we should. Yeah, I guess I was going into the scene where. Uh, I mean, are, are any of them really notable? I mean, there's there's a couple where he's just randomly wandering to women's houses and killing them and then walking away. Yeah, there's the motion detector one, which I sort of mentioned before. Yes. And the, and the babysitter scene, I think, are kind of the two. Yeah, so that's what I was getting toward because it's the scene where the one boyfriend, like, briefly considers going to try to save his girlfriend, but is ultimately like, nah, I'm not going to go up there. <laughs> and I think the same thing sort of happens around the same time with uh, Allison's boyfriend, who turns out to just be like a normal drunk high school asshole. And then the movie just completely forgets that he exists after that scene. Right. And I kind of enjoyed that. And then the babysitter scene, I thought if there's one solid set piece, scary part of the movie, that was probably it. You have that very sassy, like young black kid who's like speaking like a mile a minute it was the kind of thing where you're like, all right, guys, like, you don't need to, like, do the trot out this cliche exactly. It makes uh, me feel better about mm-hmm. some of the reservations I have about, like, you know, George Washington and some of the early David Gordon Green movies, the way that. Right. Um, but yeah, that's not. <laughs> so, David Gordon, right. So, the director of this movie started out making these extremely lyrical movies about the Black South, basically. It was just, it's a completely bizarre trajectory of a career this man has had. Um, a lot of people have, have kind of questioned things in his movies over the years, and that was, like, not, not, not a high moment. Uh, 
But I did, I did think that that sequence was effectively staged and kind of scary. The thing with like the door or whatever, where she can't close the door and he's behind the door. They gave it away in the trailers, but it's still like pretty fun in the movie. I mean, he's the literal monster in the closet at that yeah, point. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And I loved the motion-activated light murder scene. I thought that was a pretty genius way to stage a killing where, you know, somebody, uh, a kid thinks it's his neighbor, but it's really Michael Myers hiding behind, I forget, a bush or a clothesline or something. Uh, And then every time the lights turn on, he's in a different place. That freaked the hell out of me. Well, and it is, I mean, and that is one of the scenes that kind of underlies, like, there's never been... It's never kind of been official in any of the movies, I don't think, but there always been a slightly sort of supernatural quality to to Michael Myers because mm-hmm. the kind of the crux of that scene is that there's a, you know, little kid in this backyard that he's kind of sneaking up on. And every time the kid moves around, it like turns on the motion sensors and the light flickers on. And then somehow Michael Myers is like in a different place every mm-hmm. time. So mm. somehow his movements are not setting off the motion sensors. Yeah, I don't really know how that works. Those things are kind of janky, though. Have you ever had one in your yes. suburban house? Yeah. <laughs> I, I do have one in my backyard. It is completely ineffective. So I guess it's... I guess I thought it was just, yeah, turning on and off as, at random. Or you can argue realism as a defense. Yeah, yeah, I agree that that was a good sequence. I mean, I think that lights turning on and off thing is certainly a borrowed trope, but well staged here. And it's also that's also the scene where Allison realizes this is all real. And that there really is a serial killer who's going to come back to the town and stalk her family. And that's when she starts running back to the house. And it seems like she's actually intercepted by neighbors, which I assume is like a funny nod to how no one would help Laurie Strode in the first movie. Right. I mean, I think yeah. I think one of the shots they borrow is there's a kind of long shot of the street and her kind of like rounding a corner and like running towards the camera. And I've not I haven't seen the original in a while, but that certainly seems if not you know, a precise shot. I mean, it's very much like the feel of the original one, like just this young woman kind of running around in the street and like there's, and all of a sudden it's Halloween, but the streets seem to be abandoned and there's just no one to help her. One thing that did bother me about that scene was it seemed like they were punishing her for friend zoning, quote unquote, this guy who had just tried to kiss her. And she said, like, no, I know I just broke up with my boyfriend, your best friend, but that doesn't mean I want to make out with you. And then, you know, it's kind of her fault that she left him behind and he ends up getting murdered. And she then has to see his body impaled on this fence. That's interesting. I kind of felt like the person being punished in that scene was a dumbass kid who, like, came onto that (laughs) poor woman in the middle of the yard. (laughs) Like, he... I. His death is one of the more brutal ones. But you're right, of course. It, she's still being tormented, and women are always tormented in these movies by men, and that 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 is definitely there. All right, so the, so the big kind of twist in the movie, to the extent that there is one, there is this character whose name I have to look up because everybody just refers to him as New Loomis. Yeah, I was actually this, just trying to Google that and couldn't find it. Yeah, so doc- we haven't talked about him at all. Yeah, Dr. Dr. Sartain, who is kind of the structural descendant of Donald Pleasance's Dr. Loomis from the, the first movie, um, and you hear, I guess it's a, actually an actor kind of imitating Donald Pleasance's voice in this, kind of these old tapes of, of sessions around Michael. The Asylum Now is run by this Dr. Sartain, um, who is is kind of morbidly fascinated with with Michael in, a, in the sort of way of kind of sort of typical sort of movie, you know, mad scientist or whatever. Um, but you get to the point where Will Patton's cop is kind of knocked Michael down with his car and is about to apprehend him. And this doctor somehow has a pen that like turns into a knife and, <laughs> you know, like pops out the little blade and jabs Will Patton right in the neck and Basically, I thought for a moment that actually he was going to like become the new Michael Myers. Same. Me too. Yeah. I actually really, I thought that was a cute twist. I mean, cute, whatever. I guess yeah. it's murder or something. But I, I don't know. I thought that that was like a fun moment uh, that I did not see coming, did not expect. And the, the deranged doctor is always like a thing that goes through all of these movies. 
Um, I assume we probably would have had Donald Pleasance, but he died quite a while, long time ago. Yeah. But I, yeah, no, I thought that scene was great. Yes. That's all. I, I have no. I have no special insight. I just thought it was good. <laughs> any, any comments on that, Christina? I too hoped that he would become the next Michael Myers, and I like the idea of somebody studying a serial killer for so long that, like, his disgust for him ends up becoming his longing to understand him so much that he would kill somebody to feel the euphoria of, you know, what might be motivating Michael Myers. But then it sort of ends up like, oh, you can't explain a serial killer. The serial killer is just going to serial kill. Right. And then and in return, you know, for saving Michael's life or keeping him, you know, free, he gets what I think is the most graphic and disgusting death in the movie. Um, Michael kills him and then crushes his head with his boot i don't know 15 20 times and um the the movie gives us a pretty good look at what is left after yeah that. is is the joke that it looks like like a smashed pumpkin i yeah i was okay. gonna, i was i was yeah, like then the flashlight goes into his head and yes. it becomes a jack-o'-lantern yes oh that's what that was even the second time <laughs> i saw it i was like i was like what exactly did he do to his face i didn't i didn't i did not get that that's what was going on <laughs> i didn't know that that was his face i knew it was somebody's face uh, yeah i it thought was it was somebody's face uh, well One in any case cops, i thought yeah that's what i thought too but uh, yeah it's, whose face is it this is a big unanswered um, question i perhaps listeners can uh, tweet at us and tell us so before we get to the climax one scene i wanted to talk about is there are these two cops who are kind of standing guard outside Laurie Strode's house. Uh, They're both men. They're both, as everyone else in this movie, completely useless. <laughs> um, and instead of looking out for Michael Myers, they have, I, I don't, I'm going to say 25 minute conversation. It's probably like <laughs> two, it just feels longer. But they have a long discussion about banh mi sandwiches. Peanut butter banh mi. Yes. Um, which is which is one of the scenes where you're like, okay, like Danny McBride wrote this scene. Yes. I, I think that's the most... That and maybe some of the babysitter banter, but that is the one that just very much feel, felt to me like the movie just kind of stops dead to have this like funny aside, funny quote unquote. Um, it, yeah, it goes back to what Christina was talking about and that it's like really bizarre that this town presumably does not have like, you know, citywide serial killer incidents. And these cops are like talking about what they're having for lunch. It just it, it, it was a particularly absurd scene. Nobody seemed that concerned through the whole thing about what was going on. Like they right. mentioned evacuating the school dance, but like besides that, it doesn't seem like they really did much to like protect any people except for occasionally bark at them to go inside. And it turns out the school dance is fine, actually. So like, maybe yeah. right. yes. Michael didn't even go to the school dance. <laughs> it's just like they forgot about it, or there's a whole thing they cut out, or something. But yeah, that's very one wonders weird. Those scenes kind of stick out like sore thumbs for you, Christina. Or did you like the sort I of back and that. forth? Yeah, okay. Because I was extremely scared and disgusted at that point. Well, actually, I hadn't been really disgusted yet because the most disgusting part was the brains seeping out of the guy's head, which the camera lingers on for way longer than it needed to. And I think there was even a sound of the brains sort of oozing across the pavement <laughs> that that shot and sound has stuck in my head for several days now. But at that point in the movie, I was like ready for a little bit of tension relief. And so I enjoyed that silly banter. And then also I was getting used to thinking, you know, oh, these guys are going to get killed. Yes. <laughs> and so it was it felt like a good precursor to the murder that was about to take place. Yeah. So, you know, from the first scream, I mean, one of the things that's very important to slasher movies is the rules. So at that point, you kind of know what <laughs> you know what the rules are at that point. Yes. Um. So let's so let us get to the big climax of the movie. 
Karen's husband, I think, is the last person standing in the way, um, Toby Huss. He's sort of, you know, for, you know, seems like a very sort of nice guy. He's the one who makes the sort of dumb, like, peanut butter on my, on my dick joke before. But basically, it just seems a little bit like, you know, Stanley Tucci and EZA. Just kind of like a really nice, like, <laughs> genial kind of with it dad, um, which is not the person you need in this situation. So he's the one. He kind of slows Michael down long enough for them to get a chance to lock the door. Um, yes. But that is his major contribution to the final set piece. And then you've got... Um, Michael on the outside and three generations of Strode women with no further doubt about what it is that they're up against. Inside. Yes, that's what happens eventually, right? The, the granddaughter has to run through the woods and see random mannequins for a while first. And then Michael comes in and then she like goes upstairs where she has all those rooms closing. And then halfway through all of that, I think that the granddaughter just like rolls in and she's like, hello, is anybody home? And Michael's like <laughs> upstairs or something at this point. Yes. It kind of plays out that way. But eventually... We have three generations of women, two of whom are in the basement, which has a second purpose. And then I think Lori's still upstairs. We're getting the chronology fucked up, I think, but but basically Lori has no, a I moment. I think you're right. She has a moment to be alone with Michael, though. She doesn't seem, of all the things that she's done to this house, she gets a glass door, a door with glass panes in it that he immediately reaches through and grabs her. It's like, I'm sorry, but you I have more confidence in her. So if you remember the original, the reason she was able to escape from him was because I, she was trying to get out of the house that Michael was in and the door was stuck. And she was able to let herself out of the house by smashing through a glass pane and unlocking it. Oh. So I felt like maybe that made her feel safe that she was able to punch through the glass if need be. However, I did wonder why she, A, did not booby trap the house like in Home Alone. Like even if she had literally <laughs> used the same booby traps from Home Alone and at this point in 2018. Home Alone has come out, so it's public knowledge what those booby traps are. That would have been more effective. And then why does she still have the closets with the slats on them? Because if you also remember from the original, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. how he gets in to kill her, to try to kill her before she stabs him in the eye with an unraveled wire hanger. I mean, wow. She's cautious, but she's sentimental. Uh, yeah, that's. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's how you look at it. That's like both an exoneration of the movie and a whole new list of problems. I didn't really think about the slats, but that's like the most famous scene probably in horror movies besides a certain shower scene um, featuring her mother. And like, come on, you're right. The slats. There's no way she'd have slats. Yeah. Yes. It's like, well, I mean, you know, I mean, you just forget that you have a room with like, you know, louvered closet doors and creepy mannequins upstairs. I mean, it's, <laughs> she, you know, it seems like a pretty modest house that somehow has about 5,000 rooms in it for that last scene. Yeah, seriously. But yeah. So she, yeah, she's tracking Michael through the house. She's got kind of locks on every door and she's like switching off kind of spigots on the way, which you will, you know, find out why at the end of the movie. But then you have this sequence that kind of brings, you know, Judy Greer's character gets short shrift in the movie in a way that, that bumps me out a little bit, but it, she becomes kind of the pivotal one because she's the one who was raised for this, but then has, you know, forgotten or deliberately put in this training behind her. And the basement is kind of, and I kind of a, a sort of creepy way, like the basement is the the symbol of like this training that her mother put her through. It's like where the, you know, panic room is that she's supposed to, you know, go into if someone ever attacks the house, which of course no one ever did. Um, but it, it seems to have, you know, it, it the basement itself seems to be kind of like a site of, of trauma for her in a way. But there is um, this big moment. Um, Christy, do you want to describe it? Kind of Judy Greer's like button yeah, she's great. She and her daughter are, you know, semi barricaded in the basement slash safe room when Michael Myers uh, forces his way in or, or, or 
you know, removes the door by pure force. And she's trembling, holding this gun, sort of closing her eyes. The gun is wavering. And she's like, oh, I can't do this. Like, mom, help. I, I just can't do it. And so she tempts Michael Myers into the doorway and then is able to shoot him. You know, we shoot her. the act of her being unprepared to shoot him falls away. And she's like, she gotcha or some other sort of tagline like that and uh, basically saves her family. You know, and then he comes back to life because that's what he always does. Yeah, I'm not one for applause in movies, but that line and every single the screenings I've been in, everyone just spontaneously starts erupting because it's so good and so well staged. <laughs> yes. So oh, what, satisfying. Yeah, and we skipped past just slightly backtracked, but like you know, the the one callback to the movie that I thought was most effective in this is when she's the upstairs window. Jeff, do you want to describe that one? Do you remember? Oh yes, of course. So there's a scene where she Michael like. Everyone else in this movie, he can kill like in five seconds with his hand. But with Laurie Strode, he seems to have a lot of problems. Um, And so they're in the upstairs room and they finally confront each other. And he's like hiding behind a mannequin or something. And he just somehow throws her out the window. And she goes tumbling down. And we look down and she's on the lawn. And then Michael gets distracted. I think that's when the granddaughter comes in. And she gets distracted for a minute. And then he looks back out. And he knows that Laurie is gone. And of course, famously, at the end of the original Halloween, the movie ends with Michael um, no longer being on the ground after she throws him out the window, or perhaps Loomis does uh, at the very end. And that that was a great moment. Yeah, I think I read one review of this which suggested that that image, that juxtaposition kind of suggests that like Laurie has become the maniac in the movie, which I don't I don't think is the case. But I think it is definitely you know, like he should be scared of her at that point and not the other way around. Yes. Yeah, it is a moment yeah. of rec- overcoming the power for sure. And also a, a moment of his fallibility, which you hardly ever see in the movie. Like he's able to kill almost everyone that he tries to kill immediately. Right, right because the movie is sort of, the movie is sort of, I mean, he's not, you know, he's he's the shape in the original movie. He's not, I mean, he has a name, but he's really just this kind of force. Um, and this movie kind of reminds us that he is, you know, just a man in some way. So let's, Christina, why don't you tell us how he ends up at the end of the movie? Oh, it's great. So <laughs> the the women all help each other get out of the basement. Uh, and he, you know, pops back up at the last moment, right as the last, as, you know, Judy Greer's foot is about to get pulled up to safety through the trap door. He grabs her foot. They have a little tug of war with her. Um, and then once they finally get her up to safety, they flick some switch. Bars shoot out across the doorway to the basement. And then somebody, I forget if it's um, the grandmother or the mother, says, like, it's not a cage, baby. It's a trap. <gasps> <laughs> so it wasn't just the place where her mom had kept her as a kid to, to scare her into safety. All along, it was the place where they were going to end up uh, triumphing over their trauma by locking Michael Myers in the basement and setting it all aflame. And then the whole house burns down. So now we're pretty sure that he's dead. But if I know movies, in a couple of years, he's going to reemerge somehow and there will be a, you know, Halloween episode 12. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt there's going to be a Halloween episode 12, right? They're already talking about it. I mean, over the years with Michael Myers, he's obviously been decapitated. There's been so many things that have happened to him. Even Laurie Strode has been killed in the show or in the series. So at <laughs> oh, some really? point, oh, in one of the movies, yeah, in one of the movies she's killed. Uh, but of course he's going to come back. But it was still a very satisfying inferno of like terror I, I i don't know it was a, just a, it was a very fun scene the three of them standing next to each other and taking it all in was 
was a very satisfying moment for a longtime fan. Yeah, apparently John Carpenter then, has said that this is the last movie in the series, but there's definitely a sequel in there in everyone's contracts, and they have already, you know. But I mean, it, it has now been number one for two weekends in a row, which is quite unusual for horror movies. Yes. Horrors tends to open big and then drop off precipitously, and this has not had like huge competition, but even, even two number one weekends is a lot for a horror movie. So, yeah. So by like 1978 dollars, the original movie was one of the most successful independent movies of all time, famously. But the overall gross was still only like 55 million. Um, and this one did what, like 80 in its first weekend? Uh, it's by, by far going to outgross every other movie in the series. So Michael will be back or someone will. Yes. So let's, I mean, we sort of haven't talked a, a lot about um, David Gordon Green in this. I mean, you, you alluded, Jeff, to the fact that he has done just sort of a million different things. He started off as this very sort of hardcore, heavily, heavily Terrence Malick influenced art house director. Mm-hmm. And he did that for, you know, probably about almost almost 10 years. And then he started doing kind of Pineapple Express and Your Highness and the, and the Sitter was doing a bunch of these kind of stoner comedies. And then he just has been all over the place since then. He, um, the last movie he did before this was Stronger, which is a kind of very sort of up the middle, like, Pretty effective, but very kind of straightforward drama about, you know, survivor of the the Boston bombing. Um, he made Our Brand is Crisis before that, which is a kind of very loose, not particularly good kind of adaptation of a, a documentary about um, American political consultants working in South America. You know, and every once in a while he'll go and kind of go back to his like original art house thing, but he does not have like you never know what you're going to get from from a new movie. And he was seemed like a very bizarre choice for this movie. He was also at one point attached to direct a uh, remake of the remake of Suspiria that's now out from Luca Guadagnino, um, which probably would have been even even weirder. Um, yeah, but I mean, do we do we want him back for the next one? Do we want like sort of a proper horror director to take over next time? You know, I'm I honestly have always liked his movie more than average. And if I may plug one of his early thrillers, Undertow, have you seen that movie? Which yep. nobody likes. It, it, it was, why, why, all things considered, it was one of the more panned, one of his like weird Southern Gothic movies. And it's like really beautiful and bizarre. If you're ever looking for something on a rainy night, check that movie out if you can even find it on demand because nobody saw it. But I thought he staged the movie very well. He did the fan service parts well, although I did not find it scary. Sorry, Christina. I did think that some of the sequences were they were they were effective, and they were overall. I think he he he's proven himself to be a chameleon who can do a lot of different things. And it's not to say that all of his movies are great; they're often not. But I'm I'm happy to have him continue whatever it is that he's doing. Yeah, I mean, I am not incredibly familiar with his other works. But I enjoyed this movie more than I enjoy a lot of other scary movies. And I thought, you know, he got great performances and out of the cast. And uh, I would definitely watch another one of his Halloweens, Halloween 12, 13, and 14. Yeah, I mean, I, I went in a total skeptic just from why is David Gordon Green doing this? It's been nine years since the last Halloween movie. Can we just, like, leave it alone and not, you know, do, like, remake, sequelize, like, everything under the sun? Um, and, and, you know, fairly convinced by it, I, you know, some of the jokier scenes just seem very like jokey jokes kind of like shoved in there. But I, um, you know, I, I mean, I'm very like susceptible to some kind of tensey slasher stuff at some point, but I found it really worked on me in a way that, um, I sometimes found quite unpleasant, but <laughs> nonetheless was, was quite effective. So. And while we're on the note of sequels, um, I should say, just for the record, that I'm always for more sequels. I don't know why I'm one of these people, but I don't care. Reboot, remake, do all the sequels to everything. Like, why Why not? It's fun. Anyway, 
The very last shot of this movie, I've heard a few people talk about this, and I'm wondering if you guys, how it struck you. They're in the back of the, they're in the bed of the truck. Again, the Trinity, the three of them, grandmother, daughter, granddaughter. And the last cut is to granddaughter holding the butcher knife. And it's sort of, and then, and that's it. And I, the first time I saw it, I didn't think much of it. I guess I just thought that maybe she was taking like a token. I mean, it's obviously Michael's tool and he's been, you know, I guess you can see it as a castration, whatever, however you want to look at it. They've taken it from him. He's burned to death and she's holding it. But it's kind of pregnant the way that the camera cuts over and like kind of lingers on it. And I sort of wondered if they were perhaps suggesting that as a potential, potential route for the movies. I may have read too much into it. I don't, Halloween, Michelle I don't know. Myers. Well, this is a tension in long time franchises all the time. There's another one where there's another Halloween sequel with a little girl in it. Eventually, starts taking the knives. I don't remember if she's actually the killer or not, but she kind of is. And the scream movies, the joke was always that Sydney would eventually become the killer, and then ultimately her like niece did or something. Like I think that that's a tension that's always happening in these movies, and I kind of wondered if that's what was going on there, or perhaps I'm reading too much into it. The way it struck me was that she was so – that even though, you know, he died and they were all sort of hugging at the end of it and even took a moment in the middle of his, you know, him stalking them through this house, took a moment to be like, I love you. We all love each other. We're so happy that we're family. Uh, even through all of that, this was – she was so scared that she was like gripping this knife, took it from the house, couldn't even drop it before she left and, you know, will carry this trauma with her through the rest of her life and perhaps become the next – Lori slash Jamie Lee Curtis with the house with a, you know, safe room in it when she gets older. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with that. I mean, there is a little sort of appropriating the phallus there a little bit. And and I did sort of cross. Wow, I didn't get that at all. Yeah. Usually well, I'm that's, on uh, real yeah. phallus watch. <laughs> the thing is, is if you study horror movies at all, like everything's about the knives are always dicks. Like this is like, it's just like the yeah. film. It's a film theory thing. <laughs> That's the, can we can you can we do asterisk for a podcast? We do the knives are always dicks. Um, yeah, no, but and I did it did cross my mind like they're not actually like setting her up as the killer for another one, and I I think they would probably not do that, but I think it definitely does suggest as Christie's saying that they're look they're not going to get over this. I mean it's I mean because you wouldn't um, even if he's dead. I mean you never you never really get over something like this and the world isn't really safe for them. Even if Michael Myers is not the person who's going to come after them with a knife at all. So I think that's, um, and it's not just a kind of, there are more monsters in the closet or you see a hand come out of the earth or something like that at the end. And he's maybe not really dead. It kind of doesn't matter if he is the monster who comes back or not, because we know that there are many more of them. Yes. I think that's a better read and probably a more satisfying and true to the movie read. But being the horror hound that I am seeing that scene, I was kind of like, wait a minute. Is this a nod to something that's coming or not? Uh, let's hope not, because I don't. I don't really want to like. I don't. These particular three women. I hope they find some way to bring them back. Particularly Judy Greer, who I agree with Sam kind of didn't ever really get as much of a, uh, a moment in the movie as she should have. Uh, that I would love to have them back, but I'm sure they'll find some other way to do a sequel with or without them. All right. Well, I just want to draw attention again to uh, Christina saying Michelle Myers in there because I want to uh, trademark that, and I feel that if they, <laughs> I feel that if they do that, yeah, we should... maybe you need to take it into your own hands, Jeff. Yeah, I think uh, perhaps at the very least, if they do that, I think we should get a cut. Uh, agreed. Great. <laughs> I think we can all agree on that. All right. On that note, um, you owe us some money. Um, thank you for listening to the Spoiler Special. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed, and if you like the show, please rate and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil, or if you have any other feedback you'd like to share, please send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Danielle Hewitt. 
production help was provided by Shirley Chan. Thanks for listening. Jeff and Christina, thank you for doing it. Thank you, Sam. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. (laughs) Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.